This is episode four of Hashtag Atrium. I'm Matt. And I'm James. On today's show, we have the usual list of segments. The hodgepodge, the good, the true, and the beautiful, and the random guest. Who, of course, is truly random. Yes, it's always random, Matt. Right. However, our hodgepodge segment is going to be a little different today. See, in the long and storied past of this podcast, we have generally sat down to either interview someone we know about a topic or have someone share a story, etc., etc. You just summarized every episode we've ever done with a hodgepodge segment. Point taken, but there's going to be new things in the future. Anyway, today, like I said, we're doing something different. You see, the world of academic theology is a strange and interesting place. Generally, the saying fits it that there is nothing new under the sun. Even those thoughts that claim to be new are quickly explained as derived as the logical extension of some previous worldview or viewpoint of some ancient so-and-so. In short, it's boring. Or just not renowned for its novelty. And that's perfectly okay. This lack of novelty doesn't mean that academic theology is fundamentally flawed. But what it does mean is that when you come across something that is new, I mean really brand spanking novel, you sit up and pay attention. Which is why this week, Hashtag Atrium is diving into a whole new world. In a world of investigative journalism. Because when you stumble across a subject this new, this rich, this polarizing, you know you've got to share it. And if there's one thing that's true about Hashtag Atrium... It's that here, you hear about things first. But what is it you'll be hearing about first today? Well, dear listener, just the most groundbreaking theological movement of the 21st century. Centered in Vancouver, British Columbia, this movement is inspiring tens of people to reconsider all that they previously thought they knew about theology and its limits. That's right. Today on The Hodgepodge, we explore Polar Christian Studies. From the Regent College Atrium in Vancouver, BC, this is Hashtag Atrium. From Smoker Productions, I'm Matt Timms, and this is a special news edition of The Hodgepodge. Tübingen, New Haven, Durham, Cambridge. These are all places in the Western world that have become renowned as the birthplaces of various schools of theology. Vancouver, British Columbia? not historically a part of that list. Until now. With the advent of polar Christian studies at Regent College, Vancouver is putting itself on the map as a veritable hotbed of theological development. On today's hodgepodge, we look at the story of polar Christian studies itself and the story of Hashtag Atrium's discovery of this movement. We find out where polar Christian studies came from, where it's going to, and the complicated politics that are an inevitable part of the academic theological world. To find out the answers to these questions and more, we set out to talk with those who were there at the beginning. Hello, my name is Paul Guttaker, and uh, rather than a title, um, which I feel like limits what the field is to titles, I'd just like to use a metaphor for my role in polar Christian studies, and that is a bear eating a penguin on the back of a narwhal. As he said, that's Mr. Paul Guttaker, one of the most prominent voices in polar Christian studies today, as well as, despite his refusal to acknowledge it clearly, one of the co-founders of polar Christian studies. I sat down with Mr. Guttaker recently to find out more about polar Christian studies, how it began, and what makes it tick. I'm wondering if you can explain or describe for our listeners how exactly polar Christian studies began, like what was its inception? How how did you first open your eyes to this incredible discrepancy in the Christian academic landscape? Well, like most 21st century theological or historical disciplines, this one started with a conversation in Regent College's atrium, mm-hmm. um, where a friend and I 
um, Mr. Ryan Kelly. We're sitting uh, sitting on the couches and talking, and uh, he happened to mention that one of the Regent summer courses was titled Six Continent Christianity, and he he raised uh, a question that I think will will go down as one of the great revisionist questions in theological studies. What about Antarctica? If you were describing it to someone who's unfamiliar with with what this world is, what what is the world of polar Christian studies? Most simply put, uh, it has to do with studying the the norms, the histories, the uh, major and minor currents of thought, and the peoples at the poles, both north and south, um, related to Christianity or Christianities. And this is a completely unstudied field. I just have a few, you know, I've spent at least an hour um, in this discipline researching, and um, one of the things that immediately jumps out, if you just do a search through scholarly journals, you'll find when you put in, you know, African theology, American theology, Asian theology, or American Christianity, these terms, you get hundreds if not thousands of uh, scholarly articles. When you search for polar Christianity, you get zero, none at all. Uh, Antarctic Christianity, zero. Arctic Christianity, zero. Um, it's a it's a field where the literature is, I mean, non-existent to deficient, depending on how you're going to construe those numbers, which is a matter of debate, of course. Most theologies generally have some sort of central tensions that they wrestle with. Where did the tensions lie for polar Christian studies? Well, there's a little bit of a, you know, obviously a north-south tension, so I'm more of a southist myself, and, um, you know, it can, it can get heated. There's a lot of, there's a lot at stake, you could say. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of derision that we southists have for the north. They don't even have a continent, you know, they're just ice. Those tensions become real on the ground when you're in conversation with other polar, um, polar studies um, academics. I asked Mr. Guttaker how he would provide a way forward in this new movement. I consider myself someone who wants to go back and draw on, you know, kind of the earliest, most traditional sources for polar Christian studies. Mm. So, um, repristinate those. Um, I'm talking about the conversation in the atrium. I'm talking about another conversation that I had with someone. Um, these are the things that we, we can't lose sight of if the discipline is going to be faithful to its originating ethos. We had found one of the early voices in Polar Christian Studies, and were getting a clearer picture of what it looked like. But that original conversation in the atrium was not a monologue. Hello, I'm Ryan Kelly, and I'm the co-midwife of Polar Christian Studies. Mr. Kelly is the one who asked that initial thunderclap of a question, what about the Poles? However, he was a hitherto unknown voice in our investigation, and after inquiring further, we discovered he was a reclusive type who lived at the North Pole. He has never been brought on the record to talk about polar Christian studies. Until now. We sent our intrepid hashtag atrium correspondent Caroline Crawford to see if he had the same understanding of polar Christian studies as Mr. Guttaker. Uh, Mr. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I have to be honest, this is the first time I've done this. So to start off, can you describe for our listeners how Polar Christian Studies began and what was its inception? Um, well, it was kind of birthed out of a pretty severe bias in Christian Studies. Uh -huh. I mean, you got people like Mark Knoll doing uh, a course called Six Continent Christianity. That's, Ridiculous. That's, I mean, how much more explicit can you get? I mean, everyone that's been to grade school knows that there's seven continents. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like that was a gigantic blind spot in Christian studies. So what is polar Christian studies? I mean, it's everything that Christian studies is not right now. It's everything that has been excluded. But more specifically, to answer your question, it's, uh, it's the study of Christian belief, practice, people on the poles, the North Pole and the South Pole. What are the central themes of polar Christian studies? Well, first of all, I would say kind of an animating force of, of polar Christian studies is not, not to be sidelined. Um, kind of, you know, don't, 
don't let people that that are uh, quote unquote experts in Christian studies tell you that Christianity doesn't exist on Antarctica. What do you see as the future of polar Christian studies? I would hope that it would become a discipline. I mean, it's still kind of on on the on the drawing board, intellectually speaking. Um, we have a we have kind of a prolegomena conference on the horizon, where we're going to actually lay out methodology and and uh, kind of what it is actually. It's still kind of a it's it's not a discipline right now, so it can be whatever. It is a it's an amoeba. It has it can grow and slither around microscopically. It quickly became evident that despite foundational similarities, there were also startling differences. Mr. Kelly, in fact, raised some of these central problems in his conversation with Miss Crawford. I would just like to say it's a it's a common critique of my kind of way of being in the world that I'm conflicted. People may see that, you know, I am in favor of the North Pole being a continent. And some people might say, hey, that looks pretty Northist to you, in the term of my uh, colleague and sometimes antagonist, Mr. Guttaker. But I also like penguins better than polar bears. And people will say, hey, isn't there uh, some unreconciled differences there? And I say, I don't believe in differences. Our next question was not whether there were dogmatic differences. That was quickly becoming evident. But how did these two view each other, personally and professionally? We had Miss Caroline Crawford, Lucy Shaw award-winning writer, ask Mr. Kelly how he considered Mr. Guttaker in the current climate of polar Christian studies. What or who would you say are the main influences on polar Christian studies today? Um, I mean, not to kind of toot my own horn, but I would like to say I'm probably the biggest influence on, on polar Christian studies today. And then maybe like a distant second is Paul. I mean, he's kind of an upstart these days. I'm not totally on board with his ideas. Coming up in just a moment. What happens when Mr. Kelly and Mr. Guttaker get together for dialogue? We guarantee you'll have heard it here first. I used to go out hunting over frozen ice I'm drifting away on a melted slice I called to my mother in her cozy lair It's not easy being a bear It's not easy, not easy, not easy being a bear. It's not easy, not easy, not easy being a bear. You're listening to The HodgePodge, a segment of Hashtag Atrium. This week, a special news report on the new theological movement, Polar Christian Studies. Picking up where we had left off, we realized that there had been a lack of dialogue, or any exchange really, between the two founders, creating a clear need to get these two men in the same room. So, because at Hashtag Atrium we like to consider ourselves as bridge builders rather than bridge burners, we brought the two together for the first time since those early discussions a few weeks prior to see if we couldn't help them remember their first love rebuking and correcting the gross overlooking of the Poles in the past two millennia of Christian theological history. Things didn't go as well as we'd hoped. The following are edited excerpts from that meeting. I mean, I, I want to first start just by saying it's an honor and a privilege to be here um, with Mr. Kelly. I want to I go on the record being um, the same, although slightly less enthused than, than Mr. Guttaker. I, I mean, I just I think this is the kind of thing that needs to happen more in the discipline. There needs to be. I can only think of one time where we've talked about the field before this. So more talking about it will definitely be a, a big a big part of its future. But yeah, I mean, one of the one of the tensions that um, I think it'd be good to explore and maybe you know unpack a little is um, traditionally in the discipline the northest southest. Um, labels help distinguish which side of the globe you're studying. Um, it's just a fundamental distinction. And my colleague's um, reticence to claim himself as a Northist, I think, only um, sets the conversation and the dialogue back. 
there's a clear northist bias that I think it would it would help to simply unpack. So, for instance, he's gone on record as saying that the the North Pole, that the Arctic should be considered a continent. This is the kind of northist agenda that, um, first of all, again, reveals a bias that should be named, but also sets back the discipline as a whole. It's really difficult to be taken seriously as an academic discipline when we're denying the fundamentals of other disciplines. Um, so I, I see that as damaging. I'd just like for Mr. Kelly to kind of come out and say I'm a Northist. Um, I think it would move things forward to do so. Uh, I mean, with all due respect to Mr. Guttaker, I um, I don't appreciate any of his comments. I'm, I'm not even sure where these labels come from, Northist, Southist. But they, they didn't emerge organically from kind of these conversations that we've had early on in, in kind of the uh, gestation of, of polar Christian studies. I, um, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but I feel like I have to interrupt you to ask a question. Are there two poles? Maybe. See, and this is, this gets to the heart of the tension. I believe that there are two poles, and I believe that one of them is the North Pole and one of them is the South Pole. Um, and I believe there are two subsets in the field, the Northists and the Southists. Until we can establish how many poles there are, I'm not sure we can have an academic conversation. This, this I think, is actually one of the fundamental weaknesses to kind of the whole way Mr. Guttaker goes about studying polar Christianity. It's that he has kind of bought into this uh, correlationist way of doing the discipline in that he is dependent upon the findings, quote-unquote, of, of other, quote-unquote, sciences. Maybe geologists do kind of believe that there are two poles, but kind of what I wanted polar Christian studies to be is, is something that doesn't depend on other information, facts, data. I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. There's a, there's a critique to be made of the scientific project. I, I've been there. I've literally stood at the South Pole on the shoulders of a polar bear. I've literally stood on the North Pole, at the top of the pole. So I just don't understand this kind of extreme skepticism. And I don't think the discipline should be subject to it. Um, you know, the birthers should not hold the Republican Party hostage. The flat earthers should not hold everyone hostage and the poll deniers um, or as you know, kind of a more aggressive um, pejorative term for them, the pole dancers um, who suggest that they can dance around how many poles there are um, they shouldn't hold the discipline hostage. As things started to get into name calling I jumped in to make sure that we were clear on who was calling who what I asked Mr. Gutterker directly if he considered Mr. Kelly to be a pole dancer. I hate to throw that term around lightly. Um, it, it tends to be a way of pushing, pushing people away and putting labels on people, but I mean, just look up the classic definition of it on any, you know, Google it, and you'll see that he fits the description perfectly, and that is someone who dances around the number of established poles. Um, just the classic definition, he fits it to a T. Uh, yes, I, I would say that I'm a pole dancer. I know it's a pejorative term. It's, uh, it's a little bit racy, but I gladly wear... I don't understand how it's racy. <laughs> um, it's very straightforward. It's someone who doesn't know how many poles there are. It's racy because... You know, it's it's taking a walk on the wild side. Maybe there aren't two poles. Maybe they're all one. Maybe there's three. Maybe there's four. It's it's hard to say, but, you know, I will go from the left foot of there being two poles to the right foot of there being no poles, and then back to my left. What troubles me about the dialogue t to this point is that it's pretty clear that we're not going to be able to reach an agreement about the number of poles. To me, this is a fundamental. Once we Once we throw that out. I don't know what we're even talking about. I don't know why we can't just say that that the polls have been included in prior act. I mean, the whole discipline's founded on the idea that they have been marginalized and um, we're recovering or, or pointing to this 
this neglect and if we don't even know how many poles there are how can we even say they're marginalized so it may be semantics um, obviously we're this is a very esoteric discussion that we're having now that a lay person is gonna um, not really appreciate but I don't know how to move on without um, establishing the basics if, if maybe mr. Kelly would define what the essence of pole is then we could at least have a common definition uh, with all due respect, um, I think Mr. Guttaker is off his rocker here. The fact that he wants to uh, move on in some established form of discourse about polls and the number of polls that there are proves that he's on the wrong side of history. Um, and poll dancers will one day be vindicated as a perfectly legitimate uh, position to hold, just like... Um, the Quakers were originally looked down upon, and now they are a, a thriving religious organization, just like, um, you know, Mormons, George W. Bush. All these people will be vindicated by history. And I feel like pole dancers will too. The dogmatic divides seem too great to cross. Mr. Guttaker and Mr. Kelly went their separate ways without being able to come to a common agreement about the polls. Despite this core difference, however, Mr. Guttaker and Mr. Kelly have maintained some common ground. When read a quote from the 1910 Missionary Conference in London that claimed the ecumenical world could be defined without including the polls, they had very similar reactions. That's, that's plain and simple why we created the discipline of polar Christian studies. That shows you kind of the benighted restricted, myopic, uh, unintelligent views that, that the Academy voiced upon innocent people. And that's why Paul and I, in, in our kind of iconoclastic vigor, decided to create Polar Christian Studies, because we should not block out any part of the globe especially the polls. I mean, as somebody who's invested the majority of the last couple of minutes in this field, I, it just, it's, re, it's re, you know, it's revolting. I, I find it disturbing that this is the view of the world we have. We can completely cut the polls off. And I mean, in any, any eighth grader who's learned a little bit about science um, will tell you that if you just chop off the poles, the Earth will go out of its orbit. Um, so just on a basic scientific level, we, we shouldn't be thinking this way. And I, I guess I just I want to be hopeful that in, you know, that was in 1910, that in, you know, uh, 2110, there will be a conference, an ecumenical conference at the South Pole, and they'll have to ask if they should include North America uh, as part of the ecumenical world. That's just my hope. I'm just going to be honest. The commonalities don't end with a common enemy, though. Mr. Kelly and Mr. Guttaker made it very clear that there was one fact on which they would not budge. I mean, there's a lot of commonalities in, in the way that we kind of approach or begin to approach the, uh, the study of polar Christianity. I think both of us would agree that, that ice is cold and it, plays a kind of a fundamental role in yeah. polar Christian studies. That's right. Ice is very cold, um, and it it's everywhere. It's cold, and it's everywhere, and everyone is cold. And that's, it seems like a, um, some people would like to debate that, but this is one area where we're not going to brook any dis disagreement. No, and um, anybody that says ice isn't cold is stupid, and and I'm willing to draw that distinction. Yeah. Call me a fuddy-duddy. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I have sold out. But yeah. ice is cold, and, and the, that's that. The coldness of ice gives us a lot of hope for, you know, it's just one example of, of um, kind of consensus that the discipline can arrive at, and that gives us hope. Hope springs eternal. But can there truly be a consensus with so many remaining questions? Can unity exist when the very number of poles is being questioned? Are the different views on animal spirituality going to cause further tensions as the movement gets off the ground? And what about climate change? Global warming will surely have an impact on the development of this new movement. Only God knows the answers to these questions, but we can tell you this. 
Thanks to Mr. Guttaker and Mr. Kelly, Vancouver, British Columbia is now on the theological map, and those interested in being on the cutting edge do well to look to Vancouver for further developments. To those interested in entering the field of polar Christian studies, Mr. Kelly and Mr. Guttaker left us with this advice. I would say think long and hard. If there's something else that you would like to do with your life, then do it. We don't need kind of half-hearted people um, or people that want to join. We're kind of we're kind of interested in people that don't have a particular side, that are just kind of groping their way towards discipline. I, I would just give one word of warning. You can't, just because it's a new discipline, you can't just jump out there and assume you're going to be a leading expert in polar Christian studies. You've got to narrow. You've got to be specific. Um, there's a really vibrant subset of uh, Polish polar Christian studies, for instance, where people are looking at the Christianity of Polish people at the Poles. Um, but And that's just one example of how a narrow focus, you know, pick a target. Don't think you can manage both poles at once. You usually can't. They're very different. Um, and and go deep in one pole. If you were a polar bear, a a grizzly bear, there would still be something. Special thanks for this segment goes to Paul Guttaker and Ryan Kelly for being willing to grant us interviews. A very special thanks goes to Hashtag Atrium correspondent Caroline Crawford for braving the dangerous weather of the polls to bring us back Mr. Kelly's perspective. Be sure to check out Mr. Kelly's upcoming book, Whose Poll Is It? Yours, Mine, Ours, with the provocative subtitle, Not Your Mother's Poll. The upcoming conference on Prolegomena will be held sometime in 2014. Follow at Hashtag Atrium on Twitter for any further details. This is the good, the true, and the beautiful, that most pretentious of segments. James, you're up first. What have you got for us? All right. So as our regular listeners know, I sort of do this in a um, serialized fashion, <laughs> leading us from path to path as we wander through the journey of the, what is good, true, and beautiful on uh-huh. this good, true, and beautiful earth of ours. I love that metaphor. Yeah. And fitting, since we're speaking <laughs> of the earth a lot today and the poles. We are, yes. The, there's the slightest of connections there, <laughs> which I can see how you draw that. Um, also, I feel like I haven't been on the podcast very much yet, so so welcome back me. To the yes, welcome back, James. <laughs> it's good to have you with us. Thank, thanks, Matt. Okay, so <clears throat> last time, episode three, we left off at the band Sleeping at Last. Right. And one of their albums, uh, their third or fourth, I don't remember which, uh, was called Storyboards. And the first part, the first word in that compound word, that's really what that is, is the word story. Nice. And so normally, like, one place you often find stories right now are in books. And True. books are found in libraries. Oh. There's a library here at Regent College. Okay. And in that library has a shelf near the entrance with a bunch of books on it. It's the used bookshelf of the Regent College Library. Yes. And that is my good and true and beautiful thing for oh, today wow. is the used bookshelf at the Regent College Library. He's done it again. Tell me more about the, the used bookshelf and why that used bookshelf over any other used bookshelf. Well, that one, I mean, there are probably other used bookshelves in the world that are like this shelf. Maybe. Um, but this one is especially... Great, because most of the books on it aren't anything I'd be interested in. But <laughs> every once Sounds like a great used bookshelf. Yeah. But every once in a while, there's an absolute gem of a book on there. There's something really, really helpful, useful, and they're never over a dollar. Usually they're 10 cents, 50 cents. Uh, they're used library books, so they come in varying conditions, but I found some great books on that shelf. Uh, a book by Madeline Langle uh, called A Stone for the Pillow, who I, an author that I'm a fan of. Uh, I got The Descent of the Dove by Charles Williams there for 50 cents uh, on Monday. I think. Wow. So it's a shelf worth checking out that I 
didn't really regularly check because I just thought you know, it was full of worthless, like, silly books on there. But there are really good books on there occasionally, and I think it's that's a good, true, and beautiful thing, Matt. Good, true, beautiful, and cheap. And cheap. That's yeah. a nice. That's a nice addition. Cheap is good, yeah. true, and beautiful. Cheap is really itself. the fourth thing that Plato meant to list. Yeah, where's in the that? fourth? Yeah, yeah. That, not but justice, but cheap, he, cheapness. He, he died before he could get to the word cheap <laughs> in writing his books. Right. Uh, that's a good one. I I'm gonna be completely honest here on the podcast because that's what I always am on the podcast. Not in real life, though. I actually have not checked out the used bookshelf very much. You probably should although i don't really want people checking it too much because i want the good books to be left for me to how buy. often should i check it i check it usually when i open the school so oh, you okay. definitely have an advantage if you're a janitor right and you are realizing that you want no one to check it but you just advertised it to three billion listeners wow yeah well that's okay most of them don't live in vancouver that's true international audience we appreciate you yeah anything else to say uh, no, I think we can go over to you, Matt. I'm going to check this text message from my wife. Sometimes you just have to do that, even when you're recording a multi-million dollar in sponsorship podcast. That's not true. But if there are any sponsors out <laughs> As there... As are most things Matt says on this podcast. <laughs> if there are any sponsors out there, feel free to contact us at hashtag atrium at gmail.com. We're willing to talk shop. We're willing to potentially become a an advertising hub. For your business. We'll talk about things other than shops, too. I mean, we can talk yeah, about like, right. food and bookshelves. bookshelves. But what I want to talk about water. on my good, true, and beautiful topic, last week I was given a bit of a hard time about picking something like bottled water. Justifiably so. Maybe. So this week I really I dug deep, and I've actually got something that I genuinely think is good, true, and beautiful. Now... Is dug deep a metaphor, or is it something you literally did in your backyard to find something good, true, and beautiful? In this case, it is literal if the thing I was digging into was the internet. Because I dug into the internet to find the information I needed to share this point. Question two. Yes. Do we need a parental advisory on this good, true, and beautiful thing since you found it deep in the internet? No, no. Oh, well, it wasn't that deep. It was, it was more surfacey. It was, it was about one shovel down for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. So by deep, you meant... A Google search. Kind of just below the topsoil. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I just had to do a Google search. Okay. So anyway, I knew a guy in college. I'm just going to call him my friend throughout this segment. We lived on the same floor. I'd like to count him as a friend. I can't speak for him, so let that just be said. But his name is Jason Leith. Jason, forgive me if you don't think of yourself as my friend. So my friend Jason is an artist and a quite a good and skilled visual artist. Uh, but he also has a passion for social justice. And he was trying to work out a way to bring these two together. And what he did, so he lives in the L.A. area. He decided that he would go down to Skid Row... And using found items on Skid Row, uh, proceed to sketch uh, the portraits of the homeless or some of the homeless people down there. And so he would literally spend, you know, hours, I believe, sitting there sketching the portraits of these people and talking with them, hearing their life stories. And eventually he turned this into uh, a really quite phenomenally beautiful space uh, where he displayed the art and had the homeless people help him build uh, the art there. And it was just, it's a pretty incredible testament, I think, to uh, what art can do for people. Um, and it is just, it's good, it's true, and it's beautiful. And so he called this uh, Sacred Streets. And uh, I think the installation was only temporary. If you go to the website, sacredstreets.org, which will probably be linked to on the blog. Yes, we'll link to that on the blog, hashtag atrium.wordpress.com. But if you go to that link, you can see a video uh, of the space that they created. And also, there's other ways you can participate. Uh, I think you can actually maybe host a show in your area if you're interested in that. But I felt like that's the sort of good, true, and beautiful thing that somewhat surpasses bottled water and warrants a shout-out on hashtag atrium. Yeah, my only disappointment at this is that it's pretty much impossible to make fun of something that cool. So, 
uh, I think that was a great thing to bring, Matt, but I'm disappointed that I didn't get to make fun of you because this sounds like a genuinely good thing your so-called friend is doing. Yes, my so-called friend is doing great work. He's now the actually the director of some creative arts program at Saddleback Church. Oh, wow. Uh, so I forget the name of the initiative that he's working with. Uh, but he's doing that, so super excited for him. He's obviously got an incredible heart, and this project just deserves more more airplay, so I thought I'd give it some on our show. Ah, oh, that's a great idea. Christianity Today actually picked it up and wrote an article about it, I think. So, that's good. Anyway, that's... <laughs> that's good. <laughs> and true. And, and beautiful. beautiful. Up next, The Random Guest. Random Guest! This is The Random Guest, that segment where we bring in someone randomly from the atrium who happens to be around at the time and ask them a question. On today's segment, we have Esther Alloway. Hi. Esther, would you introduce yourself? Tell, tell our audience a little bit about yourself and why you happen to be in the atrium today. Um, well, technically, I was in the library. <laughs> but no, most recently I was hanging out in the atrium thinking about going home, having spent some vaguely productive hours in the library. What exactly were you working on? <laughs> uh, many, many papers um, for four different classes. She was checking Facebook when I saw her down there earlier. That too, yeah. Maybe her papers are on Facebook, James. <laughs> Maybe it's on technology. It's yeah. a totally valid studies tool, right? I, I think so. Uh, I think so. Well, Esther, welcome to the podcast. Are you a listener of, to Hashtag Atrium? I've listened to bits and pieces, uh, all of the first one and a bit of their most recent one. Okay, so I have a friend who says that he's listened to bits and pieces, and what he means is he's listened to about five minutes. When you say, I've listened to bits and pieces... And you say, I've listened to all of the first one. What exactly? Is that true? Yeah. Okay, I just wanted you to double check. You don't let your yeses be yes and your noes be noes. That's biblical. That we haven't true? had much Bible on Hashtag Atrium, no. but we could count on Esther to bring it. Yeah, oh. we don't We don't like to talk about the Bible on here normally. Right. But no, Bible and okay. theology, we avoid those things Apologies like a plague. Gentlemen. But thank you, yeah. Esther, for keeping us on the straight and narrow, which is itself a reference to the Bible. See what well I did there? Well played. That's a meta Bible <laughs> reference. <laughs> anyway, we want to get to our this week's question of the week, or question of the episode, really, since we don't do this weekly. All right. So earlier, when you weren't with us, Esther, our listeners heard a lengthy and quite animated discussion about whether Christianity should be considered at the polls as an academic discipline. And so I was wondering... You know, it made me think about the polls as uh, undiscovered territory. And there's there's many stories about people exploring the polls, going to the North Pole, going to the South Pole. Now, my question is this. Imagine an unexplored world. Our Earth, unexplored, a little bit wild. Where, If you were an explorer, where would you want to go exploring? But that's sort of a weird question because I wouldn't know, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> that is part of the premise of the question of the week, is you wouldn't necessarily know your answer until asked, because it's a random question. No, but I mean, if I was in uncharted sort of worlds... That yeah, I yeah, yeah. So okay. assuming <laughs> assuming what you know about the world now, where would you like to explore then? Is it that complicated? Is this okay, another one of Mediterranean-ish. <laughs> Somewhere, like, warm, near the water, but not too much water okay say a little bit more about that there's good food there's right but there's not food when you're exploring <laughs> well i know but they have the makings for it they've got the olives for the olive oil and the grapes for the wine and the you know sea for the seafood so you the, could make your own good food the chicken saying. for the souvlaki precisely yeah yeah the do you have a recipe for that james the, that the, you could read for us the donors for the donor <laughs> Okay, that seems like a good answer. James, how about you? 
you're kind of asking about regionally what would draw you. Yes. So people would say like, I want to explore that desert, or I want yes. to explore that ocean, or that That's right. that jungle. Russian expanse, or that the Mediterranean jungle. area. <laughs> the Russian expanse. <laughs> the Russian. <laughs> That's a technical word Siberia? for an area. The poles, right? maybe. Yeah. yeah, the poles. Um, so what I would want to explore is my first thought was because I'm from Vancouver Island in the Vancouver area, and. I love it here. I mean, I think we have a great natural environment. So my first thought was, I'd love to explore this area when it was in its sort of natural state, Mm -hmm. non-urbanized. But then I realized it's just all forest. Forest is kind of dangerous. It's and mountains and stuff. Like for one thing, it's hard to travel. Um, You're traveling down the rivers, which have rapids. There are bears that could jump out at you. You could be like two feet away from a bear and not realize it. That'd be scary. So uh, I think. I think that for my own safety, because I'm more concerned about my safety rather than adventure, uh, I'd like to explore the prairies because all I have to do is build a big tower, do it, turn in a 360, and I'm done, and I can go home for dinner. There you have it, hashtag HM. You heard it here first. The most boring answer <laughs> to the question, where in the world would you explore? I'm actually going to go with kind of your first answer. I would explore the Pacific Northwest. I just think the forests up here are beautiful. You would die in 10 minutes. (laughs) Okay, listen, but as I'm doing this, I'm taking on the persona and abilities of a professional explorer. So that was part of the condition of the question. If you were an explorer... I wasn't listening for that part. Yeah, well, typical. But, I mean, I just... I recently went camping. I got out a little bit. Oh, it was great. It was a great time. And I went on a beautiful hike, and the forest up here is just gorgeously green. Like, we don't have that back in California. And I thought, this is something I could walk through all day. I could walk through this all day. Not so much the forest back in California, but here, I could do it. And so I thought, I would like to explore this area. So to test this answer, I mean, we're planning a trip to Vancouver Island in about a week. Oh, that's true. Um, And there are lots of areas of Vancouver Island that are, at the very least, unsettled, if not mostly unexplored. So should we drive you out into a logging road to the middle of the island and just kind of kick you out of the car (laughs) and let you explore your way around? Probably also a good idea to leave me with a microphone and a laptop so I can record a remote episode of Hashtag Explorer. Yeah. Question one. Our spinoff podcast. (laughs) Hashtag Explorer. (laughs) Hashtag Explorer. Yeah, atrium. Semicolon. Or colon, sorry. Explorer edition. Explorer edition. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, Do you have anything, any other questions for Esther? Esther is going to explore the Mediterranean. Yeah. So your reason for exploring the Mediterranean area was because they have olives for olive oil and wine for grapes. Do you plan on venting? Wine for grapes. Yeah. yeah. What did I say? That's the stuff. (laughs) They have wine for grapes there. (laughs) Grapes for wine. You make, you you stitch together little skins for the wine and pour it in to make grapes. That'd be amazing. (laughs) Grapes filled with wine. There's something kind of incestuous about that. There is. Anyway, move on. Um... So would you invent olive oil and wine and the methods for making these? Because they haven't been developed yet in this scenario. I don't do well with time travel-y questions. Or movies. Or books, for that matter. Um, I mean, I hope that I would. (laughs) It's delicious stuff, but I can't promise. Nothing promised here on Hashtag Adrian. (laughs) I hopefully would be in the company of people who would think of it oh least. you want an explorer party oh yeah who would with, be like, part dogs of your and smarter yeah. people than who, I. who would be with you <laughs> yeah question one of who your would... friends right oh. now yeah. who would you take with you, you yeah. it can't be mirror james we're obvious but, choices okay. so pick yeah. other people yeah, of course we're there we're there recording your journey so who else oh my goodness um probably don't want to leave anyone out because say, all I your friends listen to this people. go ahead name, name some no. people. <laughs> yeah this is hashtag atrium is known to get pretty real Right yeah. now, we're getting really real. Yeah, we're getting real. Esther, who would you take with you? Okay, I am feeling the pressure. Um, ben White. He knows oh, wow. He knows a lot of things about a lot of things. I really like Ben White. He's also really tall. Yeah, so maybe like for fending <laughs> you, off tall things. Or you, reaching stuff? Yeah, reaching, <laughs> reaching the, the wine to fill the grapes with. Yeah, that's right. Uh, anyone else? Or is it just Ben White, I me, and James? I would take some languagey folk. Who maybe speak some like Greek languages? Yeah, like people who've just been doing suicide Greek here. Yeah, at, uh, Matt, 
Tim's. Yeah, I I'm already <laughs> I there. This isn't a problem. Thomas, but that's <laughs> Oh, Matt Thomas. Why would you isn't take he Matt like Thomas? Guy? Yeah, he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. I got the right last name. So what why why do you need these languages to like speak with the natives well, or something? Just, you know, in case. I like words too. Okay. That was actually something I was wondering the question is, are there indigenous peoples in these areas that we're exploring? Are sure. we the first Yeah, there there might be indigenous people there. We're not necessarily the first one. We're not okay. the See, first Matt ones can figure out how to land. speak with them. Yeah. There you go. Not not me, Matt Thomas. <laughs> Matt Thomas. Anyone yeah. else? Uh, I would take AJ because he has got coffee. Oh, okay. And Where would you get the coffee beans? That's AJ's problem. Okay. Okay. <laughs> he can bring them. Yeah. Uh, my sister. Your sister. What's yeah. your sister's name? My sister's name is Jen. Jen. And Jen she's good with sure. the boats and stuff, so okay. that'd come in handy. Yeah. Not uh, so she's handy. She's also an engineer. She wouldn't be so handy for James's expedition. <laughs> no. But probably good for no. yours. Yeah. Um, well, we're know. terribly sorry for all those who just got left off that list. Uh, yeah. There's hundreds of thousands of millions of people. I feel like this is a really bad acceptance speech, and I'm like forgetting to thank all the people, and you're playing uh, me off stage. Don't don't worry <laughs> about it. Don't worry about it. It happens to the best of us. I yeah. would never forget anyone, but I mean, some people tend to do that. All sometimes. right, so who would you invite on your little party? Everyone that I know. That was easy. That's such a cop out answer. But it's true. I wouldn't go. <laughs> I mean, I'd go as far as the prairies, build a tower, and stop there. Here's the That's thing. That's so boring. You know, you know when you invite a ton of people, they're not all going to say yes. So I invite everyone. I and then Facebook for that. Only a few go with me. Oh, that's a whole nother conversation. We're going to have Esther on in the future to talk about how Facebook has destroyed our ability to attend events. No. Esther, thank you so much for being on the show today. Do you have any last words to our listeners? No. Do you have any advice for future random guests? Oh, that's a great question. Um, All of my questions have been great. Most of them. <laughs> Sadly, no. No words of wisdom. Well, I'm sorry, future random guests. You'll just have to do without Esther's wisdom. We'll just wing it, really. There it is. All right. Thanks um, so much, Esther. Thanks, guys. Great having you on. Do you want a theme song to sing yourself out on? Yeah, but I don't want to sing it. In French. <laughs> Frère Jacques, Frère Jacques, dormez-vous. Matt looks really bored right now. (laughs) (laughs) Up next, housekeeping. Housekeeping! Alright, we are here to do a little bit of housekeeping at the end today. We didn't want to break the flow earlier in the episode, uh, but we have some exciting news. Not only has Hashtag Atrium broken 4 billion listeners, but we actually have a giveaway. Because, unfortunately, Amy Nickerson, who in our last episode for you faithful listeners promised to give an iTunes review, Mm-mm-mm. she has not yet done so. So, no. Amy, hopefully you hear this. Get on there. Yeah, we're calling but, you out, Amy. But we recognize, Amy, that maybe us just asking you to do a review or you just doing a review out of the goodness of your own heart wasn't enough. So we've decided to do a giveaway. We are going to be giving away two books. Two books. So one book for one person, one book for another person to the two reviews on iTunes that we like best. So, so let me just say that again. Go on iTunes, leave a review for hashtag Atrium the podcast, and you could win one of these two books. James, will you tell them what the books are? So the first one we have is A Girl Named Zippy, which has the tagline, The Secret Story of the Soviet Nuclear Submarine. And the other one is K-19, The Widowmaker, which has a tagline that it offers a rare and welcome treat, a memoir of a happy childhood. Actually, James, I think you have, <laughs> I think you have the switch. Uh, I'm pretty sure I don't. No, let it's, me just. It's it's let, a it's a girl named Zippy, yeah. which is a rare and welcome treat, a memoir of a happy childhood. I don't think you're correct. <laughs> um, let me just because there's these reviews on here too. So a girl named Zippy has a a little blurb from Tom Clancy of all people, who says that the author knows the hidden history of the former Soviet Navy probably better than any other American and most Russians, whereas K-19 The Widowmaker has a review from Entertainment Weekly. So this is a pretty uh, high quality of book we have here. So K-19 The Widowmaker is droll and distinctive, unerring in relating the universal smallness of a rambunctious yet thoughtful child's world. 
Well, regardless of which which reviews go with which and which titles go with which, they're bound to both be excellent reads. They're a little bit beat up, but here's what we'll guarantee. James and I will both sign these books. So let me let me just explain this. You're going on taking 30 seconds to do one iTunes review, and if James and I like it, you're getting for free a signed book. Okay, are we clear about that? A signed book, not signed by the author, but signed by me and James yeah, that's right. from hashtag Atrium. So it's hard to think of a better deal, a better incentive to get you out there. Um, and if you manage to figure out how to leave a seven-star review on iTunes, uh, Matt will also record an audio version of the book that you win and give it to you for free. Absolutely. Uh, from our heart to yours, that's what we'll do. So that's it for our housekeeping today and for episode four of Hashtag Atrium. That went by pretty quickly. It did. For James Smoker, I'm Matt Timms. You can find Hashtag Atrium show notes for today at hashtagatrium.wordpress.com. You can also follow us at Hashtag Atrium on Twitter. You can follow me, Matt, at Matt Timms, and James Smoker at James G. Smoker on Twitter as well. If you want to join in the conversation, maybe let us know what area of the world you'd like to explore. Go on to Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Send out a post with the hashtag AtriumPod. We look forward to hearing from you soon and being with you again next time. We're with them? Like, are we always with like, them? Just like, hanging out in their ears, just whispering. That's the way podcasts kind of work. To them. Yeah. Do you think that the girl on the cover of A Girl Named Zippy is slightly cross eyed? She definitely is. Also, yeah. kind of creepy. That's kind of unfortunate. Well, she's not creepy. It's a book you want to win. Right, sorry. Yeah. No, this is a book you want to win. Although, maybe she is creepy because she is known as the Widowmaker. So, I'm kind of curious about how that works. He was far greater than the unicorn. Because I was just a horse with the narwhal's horn. And apparently, there were monsters in the sea. But the great white bear was a fact and he roamed free He was the size of a truck and the color of light And there was nary a beast that would fight the great white He had a magical coat that he wore I wish we could do a Polish remix of our theme song. <laughs> like a polka? Like, like, yeah, a few more accordions. Some of the music provided tonight from Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com.